Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to kick things off today, I would first like to thank Forrest R., Jimmy A., and our frequent donor, Colin F., all of whom sent in donations this past week that are very welcome in that they uh, help us pay some of the bills associated with these podcasts. So, Forrest, Jimmy, and uh, Colin, thank you ever so much for your kind support. Well, can you believe that it has now been three months since we last heard from Dr. Timothy Leary? It was uh, way back in my podcast number 219, I think it was. But I'm going to uh, take care of that right now because I found a a really interesting little presentation that Dr. Leary made along with Ram Dass, the uh, former Richard Alpert. Thanks to Bruce Damer and uh, Dennis Berry, who is uh, the custodian of the Leary Archive, we uh, now have access to digital copies of much of the material in this uh, very large archive. And uh, the tape I'm going to play today is in the uh, folder labeled Horowitz. And so I'm assuming that this is a recording that was made by Michael Horowitz, who was uh, actually Dr. Leary's official archivist, I, uh, I believe. And in any event, we owe all those people our thanks for preserving this material for us to have access to today. The talk I've picked uh, is from April 23rd, 1983, and it was given at Harvard University on the uh, occasion of the 20th anniversary of Leary and Alpert being kicked out of Harvard. And uh, here is the only reference to it that I could uh, find on the Harvard website. It reads, In 1962, Harvard fired two controversial young psychologists from their faculty posts, following a year of tumult about the pair's research on LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs. Tomorrow, both men will return to Harvard. Timothy Leary, whose turn-on, tune-in, drop-out became the rallying cry for a generation of drug users, and Richard Alpert, who now goes by the name Ramdas. The two will speak at Sanders Theater at 10.30 a.m. in an event being billed as a psychedelic reunion. The forum will be moderated by Professor of Psychology David C. McClellan, who chaired the now-defunct Social Relations Department at the time of the controversy. Now, without pulling out a few old books to refresh my memory, I uh, can't quite recall all of the history surrounding McClellan and uh, the Leary team. However, if I'm not mistaken, uh, McClellan was interested enough in their work to uh, visit them at their compound in Mexico. Although, uh, as I recall, he didn't participate in their research work there. Also, uh, on the Arrowwood.org site, there's a copy of an article from the June 10th, 1963 issue in, uh, I think it was Newsweek, in which uh, it was reported that, according to Dr. David C. McClellan, head of Harvard's Department of Social Relations, and I quote, the more drugs Leary and Alpert took, the less they were interested in science. But now we're going to hear them all together once again, just uh, 20 short years after the dust-up that sent Leary and Alpert on the road to, uh, well, uh, I don't know to where exactly, but uh, it was certainly a different road than the one they'd been traveling up to then. And uh, I should mention that the recording I have of this event was split between three files, which together run uh, a little over two hours altogether. However, uh, I've taken the liberty of editing it down to about an hour and a half so that this podcast wouldn't be overly long. But in the event that you are a Leary, Ramdas, or Harvard aficionado, or scholar, 
and would like to hear the entire recording, I'll place a link to the three original MP3 files along with the uh, program notes for this podcast. So uh, you can go there and download the raw files for your own archive if you'd like. Now let's travel back to a darker age, back to the medieval reigns of Ronnie Reagan and Maggie Thatcher. Back to a time when the IBM PC XT, with its monstrous 10 megabyte hard drive, was only one month old. And, uh, <laughs> by the way, you may laugh at such a puny-sized hard drive, but if you find somebody uh, who was an early adapter back then and ask them what they thought when they fired up that monster box, I'll bet you that uh, most of them will tell you that one of their first thoughts was that they would never be able to fill up that drive. <laughs> it's really amazing, the technical progress we've made in the last 27 years since this talk took place. Now, uh, let's hope that we can make the same kind of progress in the conscious evolution of our everyday consciousness. If we're going to be able to uh, solve the big problems that our technology is now causing, then we'd better expand our awareness of uh, what is taking place before we pass some kind of a tipping point and follow this little planet and the poison the oceans to a point where humans uh, lose their ability to hang on to life here. But enough of my editorializing. Uh, let me now get out of the way for David McClellan, who will actually get out of the way much more rapidly than I have. So I will, I will now get out of the way and let them tell it as it is, as it has been, and as it will be. <laughs> well, David... <laughs> Good morning. Uh, it's nice to be back at Harvard. I think I'd really like to share just reflections about psychedelia, psychedelics, psychedelic chemicals, tryptamine derivatives, uh, altered states of consciousness. I must say the past 20 years have been the happiest years of my life. Scary, but happy. And over these years, I've continued to, um, depends on who you ask, honor or play with psychedelics. From 1963, when I left Harvard, I became very active in the psychedelic uh, movement and then went to India later and met a uh, guru. And the second day, somebody had told him apparently that I used LSD and he said to me, you use that yogi medicine? I said, yes. You got any of it? <laughs> yes. So I brought out the bottle of this and that and I put it in my palm and I pointed out the LSD and I gave him one which was 300 micrograms which was a good adult dose of pure acid <laughs> and he said come on so I gave him 300 more he said come on so I gave him 300 more and he took him in his hand and he went like that and I as a social scientist said this is going to be very interesting 
And at the end of an hour, nothing had happened at all. At the end of two hours, nothing had happened. Now, I couldn't believe that anybody could take 900 micrograms and nothing would happen. This is truly a miracle, a power, a city. So I came back to America and I told all about this. But I had this gnawing suspicion in the back of my mind that maybe what he did was sort of hypnotize me and he threw them over his shoulder. (laughs) So when I came back to India, I found myself in his presence after some months and uh, one of the things he said to me was, did you give me some medicine last time I was here? I said, yeah. He said, did I take it? And he looked at me and I said, well, I think so. That was that dialogue. And he said, what happened? I said, nothing. Looked at me, Jow, go away. So I went away for the night, and the next morning I came back. Came up and he said, you got any more of that medicine? I said, yeah. So I brought my medicine kit and... And I had five pills left, the five pills that were 300 each. So he... um, I put one in his hand and he took more and two more. He took every one but the broken one. He didn't want the broken one. He took the four sacred plants. And he held them and he took each one and he opened his mouth and stuck out his tongue. (laughs) Then he said to me, will they make me crazy? And I said, probably. (laughs) And he said, can I take water? I said, sure. So he got water, he drank water, and then we said, he brought an old man over with a watch. He said, how long will it take? So I thought, body weight, you know, maximum an hour, my goodness. So I said, an hour. So he held the watch, and at the end of an hour, nothing. And he says, these medicines were known about in the Kulu Valley long ago. But he said, that kind of knowledge has been lost for a long time, been lost. So later, uh, somebody said, is it useful, LSD? He said, it could be useful. He said, it could allow you to come in and have the darshan of Christ. Meaning you could come in and be in the presence of living spirit. But he said, you can't stay there. You can only stay about two hours, he said, and then you've got to leave. He said it would be better to become the living spirit of Christ than to visit it. But he said, your medicine won't do that. He said, it's not the true samadhi. Now, I've said, I'd suggest, suspect that I've taken LSD about once every two years since... I first ingested with Timothy. I've taken it many, many more times during the first five or six years. But I don't think I've missed a two-year period. Because I always assume that I'm going to start from a different launching pad. Because all the things that happened to me in that two years will put me in a different space from which to take off. I'll explore a new, unchanneled kind of planes of reality. And then I also feel like I'm a member of an old explorer's club that has a loyalty to have reunions, you know, and... Uh, 
So, um, <laughs> uh, let me describe one trip to you, because that all will always convey the way what, what's happening to me. I've been. Um, Uh, if I get too long-winded or anything, just stop. We'll use each other. We don't have Jeremy here. Uh, I've been a student over the years of Theravadan Buddhism, which is uh, the Pali doctrine of Buddhism. And in the Visuddhimagga, which is one of the old texts, it describes the way as your... Um, concentration deepens by doing Vipassana meditation. As your concentration gets more laser-like and your awareness stands back from time more, you get to the point where in very deep meditation you begin to see your own thoughts arising, existing, and passing away. Now, um, As Buddha pointed out, those thoughts are passing at the rate of about one trillion per blink of an eye. So for you to stand back far enough to see a thought come into existence, exist, and pass away, um, means that you have gotten your mind very far back in the relation to time. Is that coming through? Can you hear what I'm saying? Anybody out there? Okay, thanks. my ego needs a lot of love, so you just got to remember that. Okay. Uh, it works basically on love. The more you love it, the more you get out of it. Huh. Okay, so um, there's this great description of the Vasudhamaga. The Vasudhamaga is like a, a thing that makes Western psychology of the human mind look kind of uninteresting. Because it is so sophisticated in its analysis of states of consciousness. And then it describes how as you get to the point where the thought comes into existence, exists and passes away, between the end of that thought and the beginning of the next thought, there is a space. And if you enter that space, you are known as a stream enterer. And that is entering into what's called Nibbana, which is the field behind the form, if you will, or the field that is inherent within the form, or the field out of which the form arises. Okay, now let's shift gears. I am at the Mid-America Motel in Salina, Kansas. Okay. I have been driving across the country, and a rather secretive friend of mine has given me a bottle of LSD, which sparkles in the dark. And I am on my way to Boulder, Colorado, to teach with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche at a place called Naropa Institute where we began Naropa that summer. And so I've got a whole trunk full of Tibetan tankas that I'm delivering to Trungpa. And I've got three days free, so I decide room 125 of the Mid-America Motel is my ashram, my monastic cave, 
And I take the tankas out of the trunk and hang them over the different things. I put a picture of my guru in the middle of the television set, turn on the picture with no sound, so it's all coming out of his head. And I have different pictures around the room, and then in the floor in front of the television set, I have important questions to ask myself, like, you know, who are you? Uh, You know, things like that. Take off all my clothes, I take this medicine. And I need to go to the toilet, and I figure I've got 20 minutes to sort of get everything. And I had candles and incense, and I'd push the beds aside and so on. Well, I was on the toilet, and uh, this, it was like an elevator in the trade building. And I realized that whatever this was, it was more than I had anticipated. And that moment of fear of more than is a great one. I thought, what did he give me? Maybe I got the wrong dosage. I shouldn't trust him anyway. I began what you would call a bad trip in the technical language of this psychedelic movement. (laughs) So I proceeded to go directly from the toilet to the door of the motel to call for help. (laughs) Now... (laughs) My mind then imagined a naked man rushing out of room 125 calling for help. I knew I was going to die, you see. I decided I was going to die. And so I figured what will happen is they're going to call an ambulance and then they're going to take this naked man and put him on and it's going to be to there and Thorazine and questions and lights. And I'm going to die anyway. And I, why don't I die a different way than that way? So I come back inside, I just had opened the door to the chain, close the door again, come back in, and I sit down in front of the television set and I take up a picture of my guru and I look directly, it's a very fierce one in which he's pointing like, stop fucking around. And he looks at... um, me and I say to him, Maharaji, let me die. I figure this is as good a time to go as any. And what do they find? I just imagine them finding the next day this man with all these little signs and this picture in the middle of the set. And I mean, these are the artifacts that are left from that. That's the message. And it seemed like as good a message as any. So I said, let me die. And I lay down and I cuddled into a fetus position. And my mind, I began to pull back from my mind, and I began to see my thoughts arise, exist, and fall away. And for moments, you could focus on the arising of mind, and you could see how, like Christ says, I am making all things new. Look, all things are being made new. And you saw what it looked like to look and see the creation of all forms out of form. There was another moment where you just saw the kind of continuity of it all. And then there was this moment where you saw it all turning into shit just decaying. You saw everybody turning into skeletons. You saw everything turning into liquid. It was, the, it was the one where a lot of Buddhist monks commit suicide. 
Because you, you and everything you believed in and everything turns into that. It's Shiva. It's the, the dance of Shiva. And then I saw this space. And so at one point, I just, not by choice, I just drifted into the space. The next thought I had that I can remember was, wow, you can be anything this time around. You're free. You can do anything. Because it became so apparent to me the way in which mind creates. And I suddenly experienced myself as the creator instead of the victim. Because as long as I identify with my creation, I'm the victim. Now, what I experienced was a break in consciousness, not like sleep and not like dream. And all. What I experienced was a break in consciousness. And when I came back from that, I experienced that I had not come back from nothing. And I came back very, very peaceful, very fulfilled, very present, very at home, very free. Later, when talking in uh, Bodhgaya in India with a meditation teacher, I merely described this experience to him. I didn't mention the LSD. And he said to me, Oh, you are a stream enterer. You have entered nirvana. I said, No, but you don't understand. I took LSD to do that. <coughs> he said, It doesn't matter. You are a stream enterer. And that's the way I understand that methods are methods are methods. Meditation's a method and psychedelics are a method. Methods are all traps. A method by its nature is a trap. It has to entrap you into itself in order to eject you at the end. You just hope it self-ejects. Because I've met a lot of dry meditators. Are you enlightened? I meditate. I know, but are you enlightened? I meditate. <laughs> and I've certainly met a lot of acid heads. Are you enlightened? I take acid. Are you, I know. But, uh, I've just got to tell you one story that I've just told around because it just is such a beautiful statement of what was inherent in what happened in the 60s. I was going to go much further out in this lecture, but I guess you're not worth it or something. <laughs> I'll get there. Let me tell you this one story. Oh, don't mind it. It's all right. You can handle it being unloved. <laughs> We love each other enough to be able to handle that. Um, okay, this is a thing I've told in a lot of my lectures. It's such so juicy. In the late 60s, everybody that came to my lectures all looked alike. They all, uh, in the 70s, they all smiled, wore beads, uh, and they had, you know, I've seen it all. You know, I've seen the light. I'm happy. I, you know, I... They kind of... And uh, I was sort of like an uncle. You know, this is... This was the godfather, and I was sort of an uncle. And uh, I would speak on the road, and all this crowd would come, and we'd all smile at each other, and then I would say outrageous things that you only knew if you knew. And everybody would, yeah, we know. 
Well, there was a woman in the front row, and she was about 70, and she had a little hat with oranges and cherries and uh, things on her head. She had a black patent leather bag and responsible-looking Oxford shoes and a print dress. She looked like one of your relatives. And uh, she was sitting there, and everything I said, she went like this. And I thought, how does she know? I mean, I, so I'd say something more outrageous that only real heads would know, you know. And she'd go like this, and I thought, well, she may have a neck problem, you know. And I, Studying. Finally, at the end of the lecture, I sort of egged her on to come over, and she came over, and I said, she said, oh, thank you so much. That made perfect sense, all the things you were talking about. I said, how do you know? What method do you use that brings you into the space where you know those things? She leaned forward very conspiratorially, and she said, I crochet. And if I look out at my audiences these days and see the heterogeneity of the group gathered, I see that what we were a part of in the psychedelia in the early 60s and all through the late 50s and through the 60s and 70s, all of that whole process, not in itself, it's certainly television and transportation and economics and so on have all contributed, but Psychedelics was one of the major forces in a shift in consciousness in this culture. And it is very, very fast becoming a massive just change in awareness, as I can see. And it's a much more heterogeneous group. It's people that come from all they crochet. And yet they know something. Something did indeed happen. There was one time in 19, in the uh, 60s when Tim and I were working together when I took psilocybin with Madison Presnell. Madison Presnell was a black psychiatrist. He was our doctor in residence. And Madison and I took uh, psychedelics. And I grew up in Newton. And I was, yes, Weeks Junior High School and Newton High. And, uh, see, I grew up in a middle-class Jewish ghetto, and I was trained not to have prejudice. <laughs> so I didn't have any prejudice. <laughs> and when I took psilocybin with Madison, I really liked Madison, we were friends, but I was still very aware the figure was still color. And somewhere in that session, I looked at Madison and I saw a fellow being just like me who was traveling through an incarnation that was different than mine, in which he went through wearing that costume and I went through wearing this costume and he had that set of experiences and I had this set of experiences and we both grew through the experiences. Everything was going fine. And it changed my feeling towards all individual differences in other human beings. It allowed me to see, to reverse figure and ground so that I saw the way in which beings are one rather than the way in which they're many. Not instead of, but and also.
And the shot in the arm that gives to one's compassion is immense. Because you can, with psychedelics, you can control states of consciousness. You can go to the one where you look around and you see everybody as brothers and sisters. And then you go to the one where you look and you see that it's behind sexual identity and it's behind even separateness. And you see you're looking at yourself, looking at yourself, looking at yourself, looking at yourself. And there's only one of it in drag. It's the one saying, hey, let's be the many for fun. What do we do today? What will I do today? Well, I think I'll be many. Ooh, you're scary. Ollie, Ollie, in free. See, now we're the one again. And when I look at you as one, if you hurt, I hurt. And I can feel that a lot of my social action now, my anti-nuclear stuff, my planetary interests, my prison stuff, my dying project, it all has to do with my experiencing the different parts of us that feel pain. And just like you would adjust your back with a pillow when it hurts, you just start to move the energies into that area of being with it in a way that it is free to let go of the pain if it wants to. And my, I've had these uh, dialogues with Dan Ellsberg, just to compete with his dialogues with Gordon Liddy. It's a great minuet, I'll tell you. I mean, it's unbelievable when you think about it. Tim gets busted by Gordon... Is this stealing your material? Tim gets busted by Gordon Liddy. Liddy ends up in the White House. I mean, busting Nixon. Tim and Liddy both are in jail. Tim and Liddy both end up with the same lecture agent. <laughs> One creative thought, and there's a whole year of um, Liddy versus Larry. Liddy went, really busted Nixon based on breaking into Dan Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Tim and I were partners in this minuet, then we turned to our four, our corner, and there's Gordon Liddy for him and Dan Ellsberg for me. So I've been doing my dance with Dan, who's an ex-Marine captain. Okay? And Dan can't understand how I could trust that place in myself that my social action would come out of a sense of the intuitive rightness of my heart and act. Because he wants to stir up my mind with fear and urgency. And I can see from psychedelia and meditation and everything I put into myself because my message to you today is me. I'm it. This is the datum. This is the product of whatever psychedelics is about. It wasn't an error in my life. And I can say to Dan, Dan, I don't need to scare the shit out of myself to act. Because if I act out of fear, all I am doing is perpetuating fear. And the root of the nuclear sphere, the root of nuclear threat is fear. And my actions can come out of joy and a sense of my impeccable warriorness, my intuitive participation in life. I, had, I noticed I had two kinds of people in my audiences. 
those people who had didn't wouldn't cop to the fact that they had experienced being other than who they thought they were. You know, they said, I've never turned on, I've never... Everybody's had thousands of these experiences. It's all nonsense. It's just figure ground. You treat it as error until you can look at it. So I'd have half the audience, and I want to say to them, go, baby, go, get loose, get high, lose a step, dance, come on, turn on. And the other part of my audience, they found that out. And they're floating out in la-la land. So, you know, I want to say to them, come on, get your shit together, learn your zip code, get a job, clean your, you know. Because form is no other than emptiness, and emptiness is no other than form. And form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. And to deny this world of form, this exquisite, awesome world of manifestation, of the formless into form, to deny that is to go astray. Because it's God made manifest. And I'm just learning how to be a human being. And I've been through the cycle of trying to be holy and push dick under the rug. And I can feel all these changes going on and my days at Harvard and the days in psychedelia and the days in India. It's not an either-or proposition at all. It just all keeps summating as your wisdom deepens and your knowledge gets tempered into wisdom. Wisdom is what you are and knowledge is what you know. That's enough for the first round. pretty happy to be here. With uh, Richard. With David McClellan, who brought us together. Helped us move on. Helped us come together again. I understand that uh, Walter Houston Clark is here. Walter, where are you?
those that didn't hear that, uh, Walter said, uh, every good movement needs one good square. Uh, Walter, you're round and you're square and you're <laughs> spiral and <laughs> whatever geometry is needed, you're there with it. <laughs> Thank you for coming. There are many other of our old friends present, I'm sure. There's going to be a reception afterwards, and I know we'll meet again there. I feel this is a homecoming, not just in the sense of being with Richard and David and Walter, and most of all you, to be back at Harvard, but also in a deeper genetic sense. I was produced on this planet as an American-Irish person. And to come back to Boston, which is, after all, the Atlantic seaport to which eight of my great-grandparents arrived after migrating from the old world, after climbing the 3,000-mile wall of the stormy North Atlantic, to come to a new and kind of scary continent, to start a new life, settling around Boston, Woburn, Waltham, is coming back to my roots. There are many ways in which I could talk, many metaphors, many models, many computer programs. I could pop in the, the biocomputer today. I started off with the sociobiological or the genetic to recall for myself and for you that um, I have an Irish background, which is nicely celebrated in Boston. As soon as I got old enough to look around the planet, I migrated away from Massachusetts, 3,000 miles west. And for the last 30-odd years, I have been an immigrant, a migrant, a frontier person on the far banks of the Pacific Ocean a Californian. <laughs> so it's like coming back to the old sod to come to Boston. <laughs> As I did at the invitation of uh, David McClellan in 1960 to meet up with my partner and friend Richard. I didn't know much about Harvard when I got here. The first few weeks I was here, I was guided around by Richard, 
and by our friend Frank Barron, an old and loyal, distinguished psychological colleague. As I wandered around Cambridge and Harvard, I slowly began to realize that um, there was an extraordinary tradition here. A mainline tradition of psychological inquiry. Now, I'm not talking about Professor Skinner or Professor Bruner or Professor Kissinger or Professor Schlesinger all of whom have performed brilliantly. I'm talking about another tradition which has existed in this small village since the early days of its founding. A tradition of transcendental thinking. A tradition of wondrous internal paganism, a tradition that said, turn on, tune in, go within, become self-reliant, a tradition that was perhaps founded by Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, Emerson is an interesting person. Um, <coughs> Emerson came to the Harvard Divinity School in, I believe, 1838. Before that, he'd been in Europe, where he had hung out with such notorious druggies as Coleridge, Wordsworth, the nature school of English philosophy and poetry, who were um, expanding their minds with such substances as hashish and opium turning on their minds with such strange and curious and um, illuminating books as the Bhagavad Gita. Swarmerson came back to Boston, came across the Charles River, and the Harvard Divinity School gave that famous speech in which he said, Don't look for God in the temples, nor in the buildings, nor from the pulpits. Look within... Find the divinity inside yourself. Drop out. <laughs> Become self-reliant. Translated as do your own thing. And for, I believe, 33 years, he was not allowed back on these sacred territories. <laughs> We're back after 20. <laughs> They're more forgiving now. As an evolutionary genetic scientist, I would hope this is one piece of evidence suggesting that evolution is speeding up. <laughs> of course, American psychology, as we were taught it,
was founded by a Harvard professor named William James. He wrote Principles of Psychology, which is the, the classic text of American psychology. And, uh, kind of looking that over as I arrived here, I came across those interesting chapters, which led me to read the other book by William James, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience. A book which has corrupted many a mind. <laughs> in which he describes the glories of nitrous oxide (laughs) in far more colorful prose than the most intoxicated Irishman. (laughs) Every day as we walked from um, across Harvard Square to our offices in 5 Divinity Avenue, the significance of which did not escape us. <laughs> We'd pass by that little jewel chapel, the Swedenborgian chapel, and Frank Barron told me that William James's father was the, I think he was the minister there. The, uh, the great eminence of the social relations department in those days was another wondrous, New England scholar named Harry Murray. Harry Murray was not your run-of-the-mill pedantic academic. Among other things, he uh, was one of the founders of the OSS, which later became the CIA. During World War II, he uh, assembled the best minds, if there are such, <laughs> of American psychology to uh, develop new ways of assessing personality. Uh, some of the first studies on brainwashing, drug-induced cathartic uh, verbalization were done by the OSS. When we met uh, Murray for the first time, after we'd started our research, he looked with great interest and um, approval. And as I remember, quickly volunteered to be one of our subjects. It was a little later that we discovered that the tradition of transcendent thinking, the tradition of um, mind-expanding chemistry was not limited to Emerson or Thoreau or to Margaret Fuller, one of the first great American feminist philosophers, who also had um, spent some time in Europe studying transcendental philosophy, taking the drugs of the time, married a dashing Italian revolutionary baron, came back to America to continue the crusade and unfortunately was shipwrecked off Fire Island.
In addition to this long tradition, mainstream tradition of far out Sufi, Gnostic, Harvard experimentation, There was another branch of drug research. The CIA had been running projects in this area for at least 10 years before David McClellan brought the two of us together. Matter of fact, uh, hundreds of Harvard students had been tripped out by answering ads in the Harvard Crimson. He goes, you got $25 if you volunteered for an experiment. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Turned out later that such people as Ken Kesey and Allen Ginsberg had first been illuminated by volunteering for such experiments. <laughs> so when I got here in 1960, I must tell you that um, I was a square kid on the block. <laughs> Harvard University was the big league of chemical psychoactive exploration. And for that, I thank you, John Harvard. <laughs> Starting in 1960, that was an interesting year. John Kennedy was running for the presidency against Richard Nixon. I guess he stole it, the election, in Texas and Chicago, but in any case, he became president. There was a sense of youthful energy in the country. Richard and I, and Frank Barron, and Walter Clark, and Gunther Weil, George Litwin, and many Ralph Metzner. Ralph Metzner, and many others began what was known as the Harvard Psychedelic Research Project. In those days, it did seem almost miraculously simple. We gave, we shared. We took these drugs as novices, as amateurs, hesitantly moving into a field that um, had no signposts or guidelines. There was simply no language in Western psychology to describe altered states of consciousness or ecstasies or visions or terrors. The psychiatrist uh, said these were psychotomimetic experiences, but uh, that didn't seem to uh, tell us too much. We were smart enough, and I give us this credit, to know how little we knew. We uh, We shared these experiences with several hundred people. First of all, with young graduate students and with young instructors and older professors. Matter of fact, anyone that 
really wanted to take the voyage was welcome to come along. We went out to Concord Prison because we wanted to see how the illuminated or the activated or the accelerated brain would work with people very dissimilar from Harvard professors and divinity school scholars. With the leadership of Dr. Pankey and Walter Clark, we went over to Boston University and on a famous Good Friday gave psychedelic drugs and placebos to, I think, 30 divinity students from Andover Newton. <laughs> it's probably the greatest Good Friday in 2,000 years. <laughs> for half of the subjects. <laughs> the control subjects got to read the Bible. <laughs> if we learn one thing that day, Walter, we learned that it's foolish to do a double-blind uh, <laughs> control placebo experiment in which you have half the people in the room on an LSD and the other half not because... Uh, <laughs> After five minutes, no one's fooling anyone. <laughs> In these first two or three years, we... we performed without the benefit of uh, federal grants or foundation support there must have been 30, 35 of us working together voluntarily with no uh, principal investigators hmm, <laughs> <laughs> once you put that pill in your mouth you were the principal investigator <laughs> like it or not <laughs> <clears throat> it did seem so simple and so wondrous because uh, we were uh, we were fairly good people <laughs> with a wonderful support system uh, seriously and frivolously joyously and thoughtfully knowing that we were on some frontier moving into some wonderful future. And naturally, our results were positive. Because we were positive. <laughs> there were a few moments of fright. Ships lost aloft. <laughs> Aldous, where are you? <laughs> Where'd Aldous go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Bump. <laughs> Here's Aldous. <laughs> There's Wilbur and Orville. <laughs> uh. mm. 
we kept careful records and um, we made thoughtful observations and came out with many important uh, theories of psychopharmacology, including set and setting and and uh, so forth. The problem was, of course, that um, I guess the world wasn't ready for us. I think they were. I think it all worked fine. Yes, I think. I mean, I don't for one moment wish that I was not thrown out of Harvard. Anymore. <laughs> there are a few Harvard people here in the room. About ten percent. I think I can speak for Richard when I say that um, we have never, since the day of our being canned, felt uh, any rancor towards Harvard University. I've already told you, it's the, uh, it's the main line of uh, American mysticism and transcendental thinking. Uh, you're way ahead of West Point on that. been many wonderful men and women that have been Harvard graduates, and it's nice to say, um, you know, I'm a Harvard graduate. In the history of Harvard, there have only been two men that have been fired. <laughs> I didn't know that. Emerson doesn't count. He was, uh, he was like, uh, on long sabbatical. <laughs> Whether it's a fact or not, I love the image. Yeah. It's a serious question, you know, in a hundred years, whether Harvard will be known for its graduates or its... Um... <laughs> oh, God. What chutzpah he has. It's unbelievable. <laughs> What was the name of that uh, college that fired Socrates, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make sure that Harvard's name will go down in history. <laughs> mm. When we left Harvard, uh, by the way, you know, it was the Harvard Crimson that got us canned. Uh, the Harvard Crimson has asked uh, both of us to write an op-ed uh, essay, which will appear, I think, in Monday's paper. Um, I'd like to accept that uh, invitation, 
If you're going to be around, we you can do it together. Ahead. I'm or? not going to do it. I know you aren't. Is it okay if I do it? Um, oh, be uh, yes. What I'd send like my, to do... Send my love. <laughs> and if, if the Harvard Crimson is here, what I'd like to do is... Uh, I'd like to uh, come over to the Harvard Crimson office tomorrow and sit there in the newsroom. And if you can loan me a typewriter, I can even handle a word processor. And I'd like to type a little uh, essay uh, right there in the newsroom. Uh, I'll uh, get some notes from your, you so that then... Uh, You'll know what to say. I've signed your name to joint essays in the past. <laughs> <laughs> he has indeed. <laughs> he wrote Psychedelic Experience when I was out in the kitchen washing dishes. <laughs> Now, uh, sometime uh, after we left Harvard, uh, well, right after we left Harvard, we, uh, let's see, we went to Mexico, got kicked out of Mexico. We went to Dominica. Dominica, got kicked out of Dominica. Antigua. Antigua. Oh, did we get kicked out of (laughs) (laughs) Millbrook. Then we went to Millbrook. Yeah. Like, when we assembled at Millbrook, New York in the fall of 1963, we looked at each other and said, we've been kicked out of one college... In three countries, countries in yeah. three months. Now that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing well. Yeah. Um, well, then we found Melon Country. <laughs> melon Country. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I, I haven't showed this to Richard yet, but uh, I got my Freedom of Information files from the CIA, <clears throat> and uh, they actually tracked us. And I have uh, the CIA documents about what we were doing in Dominica and how many people we were there. And they say these people are going to start. Quote, this is CIA language, an alleged happiness hotel. <laughs> we should have hired them for press. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The CIA is wonderful, and I'm sure that. Uh, Harvard being the home of the OSS and the CIA. I hope there's some alumni here of the CIA. <laughs> like when they kidnapped me in Afghanistan, the memo said, uh, informal extradition. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, uh, no more CIA jokes. That's too... Uh, yeah. yeah. After uh, this experience of getting canned from Harvard in three countries, we ended up uh, at uh, Mellon Country in uh, Millbrook, New York, and stayed there for about three years. A wonderful series of chapters in my autobiography. Just released. Being published next month by uh, Jeremy Tarcher and Houghton Mifflin. Jeremy, are you here? There's Jeremy. Two wonderful pictures of Richard in my autobiography. Worth it for that. It's, yep. it's actually good, though. I read parts of it, because I've only seen it for a few hours, but it's, it is fun. Actually. So we ended up in Millbrook, New York, and stayed there for three or four years, and um, then we realized that we had uh, escaped from a wonderful institution called Harvard University, 
And it set up another institution called, well, it was IFIF, it was the Kaseya Foundation, it was called the... Freedom Center. Freedom Center, League for Spiritual, Spiritual Discovery. Discovery. God knows we had, we had a name God of week. God knows, I yes, remember that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had had enough of a happiness hotel keeping. <laughs> the problem with running happiness hotels is that nobody wants to leave. <laughs> So we decided to, um, um, we literally decided we would, remember that time we decided we would define ourselves as global travelers. This was perhaps, this was uh, after Sputnik, but before Apollo. And we found out that for, in those days, $1,700, you could get an around-the-world ticket, which you had to use within one year. So we agreed that we would make an annual rotation around the... Mm-hmm globe in one year. And first uh, Ralph Messner went, and then um, Nena and I went, and then uh, you went. And uh, we, um, we closed down our center at Millbrook, and like astronauts buckling our spacesuits and heading for the four quadrants of the galaxy. Or like knights of old, saddling to go to the four courts. <laughs> or four prison escapees heading in four different directions. <laughs> Whatever metaphor you want to use. We decided to, uh, to spread over the globe and uh, see what was going on out there. And after 20 years, we reassemble to share with each other and with you some of our observations the last 20 years have been remarkable haven't they they have put us yeah. through the changes yeah and we've put them through some changes <laughs> <laughs> <It's> no... <laughs> I know there's no us and them it's only us putting ourselves through I know through you're going to say that I've got to treat you <laughs> language it's going to have to clean up his act <laughs> I'll be the straight man. <laughs> In turn. <laughs> Richard is a Unitarian. <laughs> he ends up his book by calling me a theosophical Unitarian minister, right? Is that what you call me? With a, with a congregation of millions. Congregation of millions, yeah. It's not a bad role. It's a little stodgy. I know. I know. Well, uh... <laughs> I read his book... <laughs> I read you his book, that, putting, on, uh, putting on this image of myself that he, his mind creates, you know, and on this horny minister, you know, is all I can describe myself as, <laughs> with hope. <laughs> I use the metaphor, um, one of the books that um, really damaged my brain at an early age. Um, and left me uh, hopelessly uh, kind of whatever you're hopeless whatever you call that yeah. um, <laughs> was um, it's too hopeless to Huckleberry remember. Finn by Mark Twain uh, I think that that's the ultimate American book it's the um, you know the old trip up and down the river uh, I only crossed the river yeah <laughs> helping to free any slaves along the way. So, um, I, 
I can never figure out whether I'm Tom and you're Dick or <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> Tom and Jerry, I Tom think it is. Right. <laughs> or I'm Huck and you're Tom. Or yeah. I always saw you as the this captain of the African Queen, <laughs> which is funny considering you know, and me standing behind you, like Winston Churchill, being stolid. No, he wasn't, it turned out, but he looked that way. I mean, how he looked. Giving you courage to go on. That was the myth I used to work up. You know? We got, uh, got a few miles off that one. We got miles out of so many scenarios and so many myths. It's, yeah. We still are. Now, when we... When we uh... <laughs> Whenever you want to play, just tell me. Yeah, you can watch the thing. When we left uh, 20 years ago today... Uh, on our voyage of discovery, um, I've been in very, very involved in politics, activism, prison escapes, running for governor, <laughs> running for governor, <laughs> exile. I've been in forty jails and four continents. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even been busted yet. I'm ready to notch it. <laughs> we may have blown that whole stage. Yeah. That seems past. Well, I did it for you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I knew that at the time. Yeah. I find that um, the metaphors I've been picking up uh, in the last 20 years have been different, naturally. I've gone through different terrains, learned new dialects, uh, perfected some of the old dialects. Uh, the language is important, and as I listen to Richard and read what he writes, I see that he's saying very similar things, but in different words. Uh, at the moment, I'm very intrigued by the language of... Um, the information uh, revolution, uh, computeries. Uh, uh, I'm entranced and enthralled by the notion of the brain as a network of 40 billion personal computers, uh, apples and oranges and uh, IBMs, and, and the uh, drugs or access codes uh, and so forth. So that uh, we uh, we have uh, naturally picked up the dialects of the terrains we've been going through. I have been um, with Richard now for about uh, almost 48 hours Yeah. in Massachusetts on a farm, coming across northern Massachusetts. Uh, it's been an intoxicatingly Hasn't it? wonderful yeah, delicious. 48 hours. Delicious. We're just... Uh, very happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to take a break? And then I have a question. Why don't we take a break and uh, come back in ten minutes? And we, uh, the 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 real electricity, the real. Uh, well, it may or may not be, but we'll have questions and answers. No, but yeah. can come. I hope from uh, your questions. Your We're going to have microphones somewhere over there, I believe. Yeah. 
I'd like, I hope you have one microphone and one camera. Maybe there's one right there and oh, one there. Oh, good. Okay. See you in 10 minutes. Yeah. At this moment of reassembling, I would like to introduce to you the person who brought us together today. Our reunion is the conception, naturally, of a student. <laughs> His name is Joey Casson. I ask you to join us in uh, a grateful applause for our host. Did you know, by the way, that uh, Samuel Clemens, of course, grew up in Hannibal, Missouri, um, was working as a journalist or typesetter, got a little bored, and uh, what set him on his wondrous voyage of discovery and adventure, he read a book about some travels in South America in which the adventurer reported that the South American Indians in the Andes were using a substance which they chewed or uh, ingested which gave them tremendous euphoria and energy. It was, came from the cocoa leaf. So he started his career as a wanderer by leaving Hannibal and going down to New Orleans where he planned to take a boat to Peru and bring back and market to the American public a substance that would produce euphoria and energy, which, uh, (laughs) (laughs) as Doc Hume says, there's a long tradition of um, um, neurochemistry that we are just beginning to... uh, I like you in spite of the methods we've used to get there. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. um, I saw Tim uh, last year. I hadn't seen him for quite a while. We'd see each other off and on again, but it was often a little like we had no business with each other. But I really wanted to honor Timothy, and I went up to his beautiful home in the Hollywood Hills with an absolutely exquisite wife, Barbara, and uh, son, Zach. And I brought fruit and wine and beautiful day, and we sat outside in the sun. And there was a point, Tim and I exchanged, you know, it's like uh, explorers meeting and where have you been and let me describe the terrain there. And, so. and then at one point in the living room, later in the evening, you and I were alone for a moment. I think Barbara was putting Zach to bed or something like that. And you, I said to you, Timothy, it's more beautiful than it's ever been before and it's all so empty. And you said it is for me too. Remember that? And it was like at that moment we met in a space that we know each other so well that exists behind all of the leery drama and the 
Alpert drama and all that stuff. It was just a flicker, and it was like a reassurance in a way. It's like grace for me. Isn't that, did you feel that when I? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because explorers go in these different directions. Any paranoia you've got is going to you're going to feed upon it because the models are so disparate that I'll experience us as separate if I get caught in my model at all. And I keep getting caught, and so you became an object to me. Too bad about Tim. <laughs> Got caught in materialism, wants to go into outer space, you know, like, what kind of crap is that, you know, the inner space? No, oh, yeah. <laughs> should we play that? Which there, one should we uh, play? Should we do, we better do, there, we've got to be out of here in 45 minutes, by the way. We have to stop in 45 minutes, so the question thing at some point, whenever you want. There are tremendous differences, there have been and always will be, between us yeah. because we come from different, um, different gene pools. We were exposed to different imprints as at least child, yes, uh, at, at least. least, yeah. And, I'm uh, playing on the error variable, variance. Go ahead. <laughs> I honor these differences, uh, but there's a similarity that I find uh, not just in us, but in hundreds, thousands, and I may be Celtic exaggerating here, but I would say millions of uh, Americans that share our basic position, which is a, a discovery of, a resurrection of, uh, an acceptance of, an eventual, occasional glorification of, our singularity, mm. our uniqueness, mm. our rarity as uh, highly special people. We're all that way. The way when, I'd say it is the deeper I got, the deeper I could acknowledge that part of me which is one with everything. It just is. The deeper the faith, not belief, but faith, the more I could let myself into my humanity, into my uniqueness. And I've never been more fully unique than when I am least fully unique. I mean, I'm not, it's going from somebodyness to nobody's specialness to uniqueness. You know, it's like a unique face of God, of the formless. And it's interesting because when he said he went to prison for me, of course he does. Casper Weinberg is working for me too. <laughs> I'm carrying an American passport. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Let's take some questions. Uh, we have questions on either side, and we have to do them alternately. And don't yell out unless you're at a microphone. And uh, where are we? There's one there, and where's the one over there? Okay. Why don't we start over here? Okay. Um, basically, I have so many questions right now that I couldn't really think of one that would cover a broad spectrum of things I'd like to know from you. But... We've got very little time. All right, so the one that it. I'd like to ask is, where do we go from here? You know, I mean, you've, you've set something up here? for us. We got the question. And, yeah. <laughs> where do we go from here? I'll tell you, may I suggest something, Tim? 
Let me suggest you and I sort of face each other a little more and let the questions sort of come into the middle of the consciousness and let's play with them for a couple of minutes. Is that all right with everybody? It makes you a little into the role of being voyeurist, but that's not bad. You know. It's as fun as any other role. Is this okay? Okay. So the question before us, doctor, where do we go from here? Well, uh, everyone is pilot of your own spaceship, and uh, there's no reason why you can't go wherever you want to go. Uh, assuming you are serious enough and intelligent enough to get the navigational guides to check out the, uh, the landing strips, to know your equipment well enough to know what speed and altitude you can uh, uh, move at, but there's no reason why, at this moment in history, we are so fortunate, so blessed with options and with virtuous uh, perspectives. There's no limiting where any one of us can go individually or collectively. I agree. Uh, I have a friend who is a disembodied being named Emmanuel. You have your kind of friends, I have mine, okay? And Emmanuel speaks through a lady named Pat Rodergast. And Emmanuel, who I trust completely, I said to him, Emmanuel, what do I tell people about death? He says, tell them it's absolutely safe. <laughs> he said, it's like taking off a tight shoe. Right? Who wouldn't trust somebody like that? Yeah. And Emmanuel said to me, you have the choice of whether you want to be the creator or the victim. He said that all form in the universe, including your mind and your thoughts, is part of law. It's unfolding lawfully. It's the karma unfolding, just law. And within that, there is no freedom. So there really is no freedom in form. The freedom comes as the formless creates the form. This is where the freedom is. And that freedom of the formless coming into form is a place from which you stand, in which you, or you don't stand, in which you experience the creation of your own universe around you. And he said, you have the choice. Do you want to identify with that, with the law, or do you want to identify with that which lies behind the law? And so I think your answer is right on. Everybody's got every possibility. I, mean, I can see the, the kind of tinselly thinness of the whole political superstructure of the, of the earth. It's like one thought away from something. Do you get that feeling? <laughs> Go ahead. Question. Thanks. Richard Alpert. Uh, you said, uh, Mr. Alpert, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. To deny this world is to go astray. Yet I couldn't help noticing during the course of this dialogue that now and then you would detach yourself and go into a meditation. It reminded me as I was watching you that Emerson once said, the unity of mankind is to be found when all of the uniters are perfectly isolated. Personally, I think this is uh, a deception. I think that the unity of mankind is not to be found when we are detached from each other at all. We must make our oneness real. We must do the very thing you're okay, doing in prison. we got the question. Come on, don't do that. Be, don't, you I'll hire say what you, I want, just yeah. as you did. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, okay. We're all one, brother. I say what I want, and I'm free to. This is too. Cambridge and Harvard. Okay. Just answer my question. 
Of course I'll answer your question. <laughs> if you wish. You don't have to either. You're free also. I understand. Um, I like rowdy crowds. <laughs> Uh, I like best the rowdy ones where the hearts are open, you know, so, and, uh, just as long as there's love, there can be incredible rowdiness. That's like an Irish, you know, thing, you know, party. The minute, the minute the love gets brittle and everybody's trying to do it, you know, the, when the humor gets that way, I, it's Shiva, but I don't particularly choose those evenings. Oh, we can smother any aggression with mellow. <laughs> <laughs> We're answering your question. Don't go away. Uh, I think that, uh, the uh, Castaneda line of being an impeccable warrior is right on. And I think to be an impeccable warrior, you can't be a slob at any level. And the level at which we are at form, to be a conscious being means to care about other human beings and be involved with them and be responsible for them and to be sharing with them. And that unity is the physical vehicle into the other realms of unity. It's a method. It's the method of Tantra, of going through form to beyond form. And it's an, an honorable form. It's an honorable form. Question. Uh, yes, uh, good afternoon. Um, while I appreciate the, uh, the Twain image, I personally would view it more as the Brett and Bart Maverick of uh, <clears throat> the scene. I would like to ask you, Mr. Leary, uh, what, A, was your relationship to the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, if any, in Southern California? And, B, what did you think of uh, Kesey's letter to you that was written I believe in published in Rolling Stone when you were in exile. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love was a group of uh, Southern California young people. It was about eight or ten uh, men and women, or no couples, 16 or 20 men and women, who for one brief period were bringing in more dope into this country than. Uh, perhaps anyone in history. Uh, there's that rare moment in American history when uh, dope smuggling was a, uh, if I can excuse the expression, a holy uh, enterprise. Uh, they were, well... Uh, it should be, but these were the days before transport planes and Bolivian generals and million-dollar payoffs. These were uh, kids, uh, high school and college kids from Southern California. They would go to Mexico on their own, beat up cars and drink tequila with the wonderful people down there and bring a few kilos back, smoke half and sell the rest. That uh, uh, They were doing it uh, uh, conspicuous underconsumption. They drove terrible cars that were always breaking down in the highway filled with contraband. Uh, <laughs> uh, they... Uh, there were eight or ten of them. Uh, they became a legend. They became a myth. At one point, you could go in any youth ghetto in uh, the Western world, or, or you could go to any town in Afghanistan or Lebanon or um, uh, Pac uh, Pakistan and say uh, the, the few magic syllables, Brotherhood of Eternal Love, and uh, you were immediately accepted. Then it became like any uh, myth or institution. It became too popular. Pretty soon there were lots of people going around saying they became to the, were members of this group. Um, 
And uh, eventually, it became like Johnny Walker after a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> like any other, except, except any other illegal. group. The same Johnny thing happened to Christianity, you know, after... Uh, <laughs> go. Go. Ken Kesey... Uh, Ken Kesey has always had a very interesting relationship with us. Uh, uh, we honor and love and respect what Kesey did on the West Coast uh, when we were uh, in our more meditative and uh, pedantic scholarly mood here at Harvard at Millbrook. Uh, Kesey and Ken Babs and his group, the Merry Pranksters, uh, just barreled across the United States uh, emitting day-glow sparks of uh, illumination and... Um, uh, played a, a wonderful role. Uh, I, I find Ken kind of dull. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he has become dull. Uh, yeah, he has become dull, exactly. But I think he'll come back. Yeah, undoubtedly, we all do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I was trying to think of Dayglow Sparks, and I don't get yeah. that off that way from Ken. I know, but yeah. uh, uh, we're in touch with Ken. Um, <laughs> Tuning out, Ken. <laughs> Uh, we'll get him on a platform sometime, huh? <laughs> Question. I'd like to ask about writing in collaboration with another person or in a team with people as a means of broadcast. Do you think it uh, enhances or detracts creative output? Uh, is, there a good, is there a good algorithm for multiplexing different inputs when you're trying to write in a team? Uh, and specifically, Dr. Lear, would you, uh, are you going to write with Robert... Anton Wilson again, or would you with Alistair Crowley if you'd have had the shot at it? that all that? No, I didn't. Did you? The question is about writing as teams and with other uh, consciousnesses, like, um, you know, who are you going to write with? Things like that. Or that's you, an interesting and the question. Input of a lot yeah. of ideas. Yeah. Uh, the notion of the lonely writer in his or her garret uh, and the pen uh, pouring out the genius in that. Uh, lonely room, uh, being misunderstood or occasionally hitting, that's as old-fashioned as, to me, as, um, you know, uh, the quill? The, yes, yeah. The quill. Or the paleolith uh, cave person on the wall. Uh, I think writing should be collaborative. I've been fortunate enough in the last uh, two years to have simply the best publisher in the world, Jeremy Tarcher. Jeremy has uh, provided uh, me with editors so that I now see writing a book as like making a movie in which I start off with a scriptwriter. There are editors and uh, film cutters and uh, anyone that walks in the room can uh, uh, read what we're doing, see what's on the wall and change it. I notice that your works have always been collaborative and uh, I think that um, the future of, of verbal communication yeah. is going to be I'll tell you, something in interesting happened. To me is that I, uh, and I think it was psychedelics and whatever Eastern trip I've gotten into, but there was some way in which um, I shifted from uh, vertical to horizontal social structure. And I really started to appreciate what networking was about. And I saw that it was very, that even though, like at this moment, we are playing these roles of specialness, if you will. I don't experience that as any more, that's just like a dream reality to me. And behind it all, here you are and here I am and so on. And in a way, that networking quality makes collaboration so much easier. Because you see that everybody has a lot to offer all the time. My next book, uh, it's my autobiography, it's called Flashbacks, and I really think you should... 
Good book. <laughs> Brain Damage Incorporated, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> Um, when it comes out in paperback, I'm going to insist, uh, if I can do it, that the contract be such that the book can be changed and revised by any reader. Uh, the book is on, uh, it's on a word processing disk, an enormous disk, not a little sloppy floppy disk. Uh, and uh, I'm going to invite any reader who has a different image of that particular event because hundreds and hundreds of people were involved in each of these scenes in my uh, book, or anyone that had a different version of that period can write in a line, a paragraph, even a page, and if it fits and if we can use it, we'll put that uh, new version in so that the next edition of the book and the subsequent edition of the book will be an ongoing... You know... I, Excuse me? I don't revise books. I mean, um, I shudder at some of the things that were written then, but um, I figured finally to just let it all rest as stuff behind and clear the decks and make the statement afresh each time. Question? Yes. Into the mic. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. I would like to know, uh, this is directed to you, Tim, what some of your opinions are on the physically adverse effects on the brain, on the drug that we've been talking about here today. And also I'd like you to expand a bit on what the government uh, has done in terms of looking towards the future, um, perhaps in, in looking towards helping psychiatric patients through the uh, positive effects of the drug and how that has also had an effect on you in terms of what the government has done hey. to you over the last 20 years? So it's a three-part question. Second part to do with guns? Huh? Guns? No, it has nothing to do with guns. <laughs> what was the second part? Psychiatric. The government is... Uh, what's the government doing in the future about getting funds or support for the psychiatric use of psychedelics? <laughs> and what are the negative funds? <laughs> Not guns. <laughs> Do you think is that your answer, or do you want to with, more? <laughs> in other words, do you think there is a future where, uh, instead of the government constantly trying to put it down, uh, do you think there's an opening in the future for looking towards this drug as a way okay. of helping psychiatric patients? I think anyone that looks to the government... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really... Good. I hear that one. looks to the government to solve any problem is kind of uh, <laughs> looking in the wrong direction. For many reasons, uh, I live in Hollywood now, uh, and uh, because I think it's important to influence the people that are making movies, because movies influence so many people. And like everyone else, I'm uh, appalled and uh, discouraged by the violence and the crudity uh, that comes out of uh, our television and uh, movie mm. studios. Um, I think it was a wonderful, wonderful... Uh, Confrontation. That's what it was between uh, two legendary spiritual images. The little fellow from up there and uh, the little brown man from down here. Uh, I saw Gandhi uh, as being, as playing to the old 
outworn metaphors of the past. This saintly medieval person with a robe and sandals and a staff walking among the poor, um, quite anti-technology. He doesn't, didn't know about it. High-tech can also mean high-touch uh, with his spinning wheel. Uh, the last scene when suffering from anorexia nervosa, he... Um, <laughs> it, it's, right, it's right out of the Catholic uh, Bible. Uh, here's the sinner, you know, the, the fellow that had killed the Muslims. The sinner confesses. The aging, dying, holy saint blesses him and he kisses his feet. And the saint goes off to get crucified. Now, as uh, Drew Barrymore would say, give me a break. <laughs> ben Kingsley. I thought Adenberg, yeah. Ben, ben Kingsley did it well, didn't he? Yeah. Couldn't he play the part of Ben Kingsley? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Put you on a diet. <laughs> well, we would say. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Question? I have no question, only I wanted to take a moment as a part of the audience to say thank you for being here today and bringing us to this experience. Thank you. We are thanked. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. You know, I just love the Irish trickster and the good Dr. Leary. Who else would have the gall, while speaking at Harvard, to imply that for people living 2,000 years from now, that they would only know the name of Harvard because of him <laughs> and his self-comparison with the uh, trials and tribulations of Emerson were equally amusing uh, and entertaining to me. But uh, beyond the entertainment factor, I also hope you picked up a few bits and pieces of our shared historic legacy, uh, maybe that uh, have been missing before. I have to admit that hearing several of the exchanges between Leary and Ramdas. Uh, made both of them seem much more human and uh, somehow warmer than they'd seemed to me before. And while I could hear the joy in their voices, uh, I also thought that I picked up a bit of melancholy. But, uh, hey, uh, maybe that's just my overlay on it. I'd like to go on, but uh, since this talk ran longer than usual, I'm going to save my other comments for next week's program. And I'd tell you what that will be, but uh, the truth is that I haven't decided yet. Suddenly, I'm uh, blessed with an abundance of riches when it comes to old recordings that uh, up to now may have escaped the clutches of the Internet. But fear not, uh, between all of us, you included, I suspect we're going to digitize the words and wisdom of our elders uh, up to the point where even the most lumpen of the unwashed masses among us will stumble upon a few of these recordings. And if that doesn't change the world, well then maybe something else will. <laughs> it's a never-ending story, you know, so uh, don't get too wrapped up in all of the drama. Uh, unless, of course, you're directly affected by it yourself. Uh, you know, pay attention, help out in ways that you can, but don't let the establishment keep you in constant fear. Probably the best thing you could do right now is uh, 
no matter where you are, is uh, turn off this podcast and put on some of your favorite music. Then uh, get up and dance. You know, life is like a dance, my friend. It's uh, got no end point. Its purpose is just to move with the music, go with the flow. And uh, live large, my friend, whatever that may mean to you. Live large. It's your life after all, you know. Uh, Give it some meaning yourself. Nobody else can do that for you. Well, now, uh, where did that come from, huh? I guess I'd better get out of here before I wind up sounding like a preacher or, uh, worse, a politician. So I'll close today's podcast again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, well, uh, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.